from Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Zoom Room, a youth-produced podcast where we zoom into a different theme or topic through interviews and conversations relevant to us, the youth of Alaska. I'm Atme producer Yuli Zong, and in this episode, we're going to talk about volcanoes. Atme senior producer Daisy Carter spoke with Chris Way Thomas, a research geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey. He has been working as a geologist in Alaska since 1977, and in 1992, he moved to Anchorage to work at the Volcano Observatory. Way Thomas spoke with Daisy about the life cycle of a volcano, the different types of volcanoes in Alaska, and how to be prepared should a nearby volcano erupt. Can you talk a little bit about what exactly you do, like more on a day-to-day kind of basis? So the Volcano Observatory uh, has the responsibility of monitoring, uh, studying, understanding uh, volcanism in the state of Alaska. And the reason that's important is that there are um, quite a few volcanoes that can erupt explosively and produce uh, significant ash clouds. And those ash clouds go high enough to interfere with jet airline travel. So they, they go uh, you know, above 20,000 feet, sometimes as high as 60,000 feet. And um, jet aircraft and ash don't get along so well. So if a, if a jet were to fly into an ash cloud, it, it could cause all kinds of problems and possibly cause the plane to crash. So this happened in uh, 1989. Uh, a 747 full of people was on approach to Anchorage International Airport, and it, it flew into a readout ash cloud. Uh, readout had erupted. The pilots were unaware of this until they were in the ash. They didn't really know right away what it was. Uh, All four engines on the airplane stopped working, and the plane was basically in free fall. Um, I think, I'm not sure how far it fell before they got the engines restarted, but they did and uh, landed the airplane safely in Anchorage. But uh, it was a hair-raising experience for everybody on board, and it cost then, uh, I'm not sure what the difference in price is now, but about $80 million in damage to the aircraft. And uh, so since that episode, since that event, the uh, our then-Senator Ted Stevens recognized how important air travel was to the state of Alaska. And he also knew that there were lots of active volcanoes and that this scenario could repeat itself. And so he started steering some uh, federal money to start an observatory to, to basically monitor and, and uh, mitigate this hazard and to keep airplanes away from ash. So that's kind of why we exist. Um, and that, that, that's our main mission is, is to uh, monitor and warn of hazards and stuff like that. But it's a little more diverse than that. Uh, we do all kinds of studies from, you know, basic geologic mapping and uh, analysis of samples. We do geochronology on volcanic rocks and deposits to, to figure out the eruptive history. Uh, we write all kinds of reports and articles. Uh, we do things like this. We have a pretty robust outreach program 
with the communities and interested people. We have stuff on Facebook and Twitter. Um, so, and the information goes out daily. Um, we put out a daily update that uh, tells people and, and agencies and the military folks like that, what's happening with the volcanoes on a given day. Wow. Very fascinating. And I didn't, I didn't realize how, how important, you know, volcanology was to, you know, aircraft. Yeah. The passenger travel is, is, uh, is, is something. Um, the, the numbers vary a little bit, but it, it's somewhere in the range of two to 400 aircraft every day and, you know, 20 to 40,000 people. And then there's a big cargo component too. So Anchorage is a pretty substantial cargo hub. So FedEx, UPS, and some other carriers hub here in Anchorage. So um, there's a lot of air travel. Um, and, and so if you were to fly it from Anchorage or Seattle or San Francisco to the far east, you have to fly these great circle routes, which take you right over all of these volcanoes. There are 52 historically active volcanoes in Alaska and another 60 or so that have had activity in the last five to 10,000 years. And occasionally one of these sleepers wakes up. Um, there have been a couple of eruptions that we've dealt with where the volcano had no historical activity and wasn't of great concern to us. And then it became active. In one case, uh, it almost killed two people, uh, two biologists who were working on the island. So uh, even though they're, they're historically active, that doesn't rule out that, that uh, something else can happen you know, at another place. Is sleepers is what you call um, just not active volcanoes? And that's not actually the scientific way to say it. But, um, we, we would refer to them as, as not historically active. And then to, to refine that statement, we would try to figure out when the last eruption occurred and how often in the past it might have erupted. So in this particular case, it was a small island volcano called Kasatochi, which is out near Adak. It's about 60 miles northeast of, of Adak. And um, it's very interesting because the, the, the island is um, a place where uh, seabirds nest in great abundance. There's like a half a million uh, seabirds that, that nest there. And the biologists were there studying the seabirds and uh, had to be evacuated. And basically they got off the island about a half an hour before the thing exploded. Oh my goodness. And they would have been killed had they remained behind. Yeah. Wow. That yeah, was really something. How did you get your start kind of in volcanology and, and geology? Well, uh, goes back to high school. I took earth science as a high school student and, um, really liked it. And then when I got to college, I thought I'll take geology. I really enjoyed my high school class. And within a week, I think, or so, I decided to major in geology and uh, then decided, you know, I was going to go all the way through graduate school, get my doctorate and turn it into a career. Um, I was pretty fortunate as an undergrad to be taken along as a field assistant with two of my uh, undergraduate professors. So the, the first field experience I had was with the Canadian Geological Survey 
And we are up in the high Arctic. We are up on uh, Melville Peninsula, which is up near Baffin Island. Um, about, uh, let's see, maybe 68 degrees north, 70 degrees north latitude. So high, high Arctic. And that, that was amazing. The next summer, uh, I worked with another professor up here in Alaska, and um, that just solidified my decision that that's what I wanted to do. And I loved Alaska at, at, after that. We did a, a lot of geology by horseback um, in the Alaska range, which was unbelievable. I mean, that's really old school field geology doing it on horses. So those that really kind of solidified my interest and desire to, to pursue earth science. And then I was extremely fortunate to be paired up with uh, some great faculty. So I went to college at Grand Valley State University in Allendale, Michigan, near Grand Rapids. And then I got a master's degree at Southern Illinois University. And I worked with a guy there named Dale Ritter, who was a geomorphologist. And then from there, I went to the University of Colorado. And I was in the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. And uh, more really great faculty and mentors there. I love Boulder uh, and University of Colorado. It was a very academically rich environment to be in. My other great love is long distance running. So the combination of being in Boulder for school and to be running there was, was heaven for me, right? So I wasn't in any big hurry to leave. So I took a little longer to finish up. But toward the end of my uh, time at, at CU, um, I started working as a student for the USGS uh, in Lakewood and uh, turned that into a postdoc. Um, they had at the time a National Research Council postdoctoral fellowship that I got and stayed another two years. And I wanted to stay in the area, but there weren't any opportunities. Um, but there were in Alaska. And since I had a lot of experience working in Alaska, uh, it was a natural place to, to go. And so when I finished my postdoc, uh, I came to Anchorage and then got involved with the Volcano Observatory soon after that. That's interesting. I definitely find a lot of people who who study, you know, these sciences, that's what they say. They say, I went to school out of state and then I came into I came to Alaska and it was just this magical place <laughs> and I stayed. So it's great that that's what happened to you, too. Yeah, for geology, it doesn't get much better than Alaska. I mean, things happen up here in a big way, right? Earthquakes, eruptions, landslides, you name it. It, it, it. It's really phenomenal what goes on up here. And there's so much work to do. Many places that we work uh, in the Aleutian Islands have not been studied in very much detail. There have been very few people to visit these places. So there's still... Um, you know, unlike the Cascades, for example, that, that, that have received much study or the Hawaiian Islands, right, where lots of people have been, not the case up here. Um, there's so much to do, many, many careers worth of work. Uh, so we're, we're never like bored <laughs> thinking what to do next. Our problem is it's like a kid in a candy store, right? You've got so much to do and so much on your plate and so many things that come along that, it's hard to keep up with it sometimes. And then when when volcanoes get active, then we've got to kind of drop our research work and get on that. And at any given time, there can be multiple volcanoes doing something. 
Alaska is definitely a very special place. And I think it's very, yeah, like you said, it's very active in a lot of geology kind of. It was kind of funny. We, we just hired a, a new seismologist at the Volcano Observatory. And the, the, the day after she arrived, we had like a magnitude five earthquake oh that that was felt, right? And she was in her office, like, welcome to Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a great welcome, you know, to Alaska. <laughs> this is an earthquake. Yeah. 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 So um for some of our listeners who might not understand um volcanoes as well as you do, can you sort of go through a life cycle of a volcano? So the reason we have volcanoes in Alaska has to do with the way the earth kind of works, right? So the earth's surface is made up of a bunch of uh, moving, uh, what are called plates, right? So the earth's crust um, is moving around with respect to other parts of the crust. And where, where these, these uh, 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 big chunks of rock meet each other, they they uh, they get displaced, right? So along the Alaska Peninsula and the Aleutian Islands, we have what's called the Aleutian Arc, and that's a a, a feature uh, called the subduction zone. And at that zone, the Pacific Ocean floor is being pushed underneath what's known as the North American Plate, and as the ocean floor gets pushed. Uh, downward, it it uh, is compressed and heated, and it's heated to the point that the rocks begin to break and melt, and the melt will just rise uh, buoyantly um, to the surface, and uh, and that gives rise to volcanic activity. So, um, and that's a process that's been going on for uh, thousands of years. Um, who knows how long? But um, that's what really drives volcanism in Alaska. And so as long as that process is active and occurring, magmas are going to be generated and we're going to have eruptive activity. What's interesting about that process is that we can, in some ways, monitor what's going on with, with uh, size, seismic data. So one of the chief tools that we use to monitor volcanoes are uh, seismometers. We have... Uh, an array of, of seismometers around the volcano, and we can uh, detect volcanic earthquakes and figure out where the magma might be and make inferences about what uh, what's likely to happen based on the past behavior of the volcano. I'll just say a few things about uh, some unusual things that happen. So e even though the volcanoes that we know well are obvious in their physical appearance, right? They're pyramid-shaped mountains, and they steam and they erupt. Once in a while, uh, some some kind of odd things happen. So in the in the seventies, um, there was a little leak of magma to the surface from a magma chamber somewhere uh, in the crust that intersected the groundwater table and produced an explosion. These things are called uh, MARS, M-A-A-R-S. And uh, this particular one is called Yukonrek Mars, and it's it's out near uh, Ugashik Lake, Pulik, over in that area, not too far from King Salmon. And this was totally uh, unexpected, right? Um, no, no one would have predicted that, that this MAR 
eruption was going to happen where it did. And uh, at, we didn't have any monitoring uh, capabilities at the time. So we don't know if there was precursory seismicity or anything. Um, and then I talked about Kasatochi, you know, kind of coming back to life. And then more recently, um, we had an eruption at an island, a very, very small island north of Dutch Harbor called Bogoslav. And uh, Bogoslav is it's like less than a mile long, half a mile wide. It's just a tiny little island, but it's the, just the very tippy top of a very large submarine volcano. And uh, we had never really monitored a submarine eruption before. That was the first one that the observatory ever dealt with. And it was very, very interesting. Uh, Bogoslav is another one of these islands that's, that's uh, kind of known for its uh, marine uh, wildlife. Uh, sea lions and fur seals um, are there in great abundance. I mean, they're all over the beaches. And there are lots and lots of seabirds that are out there as well. But um, this eruption went on for nine months. And uh, it was a, a kind of magma interacting with water, producing these, these um, uh, it's, it's kind of bizarre to think of this, but the, the ash clouds that were produced had, were mostly water with small amounts of ash. And as they rose into the atmosphere, the water vapor turned to ice. So they were ice clouds. And um, these kind of clouds become uh, very charged uh, with static electricity, and they produced uh, amazing lightning storms. Um, so that was a monitoring technique that we began to use because you can detect lightning at great distances from the source you know, a thousand kilometers away sometimes. And so lightning is not very common uh, as, a, as a weather phenomenon in that part of Alaska. So when we got these lightning strikes going on, we knew that there was, you know, activity occurring. So that, that was really amazing to, to watch that. And then eventually go there we, we made a, a couple of trips there with the Fish and Wildlife Service. They have a research vessel called the Tekla, and uh, they picked us up in Dutch Harbor, and we went over there. And it was unbelievable. It was the, the center part of the island was still very, very hot, and there were boiling fumaroles and um, kind of Yellowstone-type activity going on. The whole island was covered with ash and um but the, the marine life was there. They came back to the beaches and I think liked the additional real estate that was generated by the eruption. But it, it was really uh, amazing to, to go there. Um, yeah, Bogoslav is, is interesting uh, for lots of reasons besides the, the, you know, the way it behaves and erupts. And it has been visited by uh, lots of famous scientists over the years. James Cook actually went there. Um, the Harriman expedition visited there. Uh, Thomas Jagger went there a couple times, and he was the founder of the Hawaii Volcano Observatory. And uh, the, the museum there at HVO is named the Jagger Museum for him. And while he was in Dutch Harbor, I understand, he, he started thinking about the necessity to have volcano observatories. 
and soon after that founded the Hawaii Volcano Observatory. So the, that's kind of a cool linkage, right? To, to be going to a place that had been visited by some of these luminary scientists, right? John Burroughs uh, went there um, uh, with the Harriman expedition. Um, John Muir also uh, went along and uh, there's pictures of them on the island. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that's that's super amazing. That's super cool that, it, that you got to visit, you know, this area where there are so many amazing um, scientists. And Well, that that's another really remarkable part of this job is that I get to work with some really incredible people. Uh, I have some really wonderful colleagues at the Volcano Observatory. And um, this work that I do with the Fish and Wildlife Service is just fascinating because they're, they're biologists, so they speak a slightly different language. But, but having, having this kind of multidisciplinary team working on, on, a, on a common thing is, is very, very fascinating. I learn a tremendous amount. Um, and it's lots of fun, you know, to have conversations with people who different, do different kinds of science. Um, yeah, the, the travel component of being a geologist is, is, is hard to beat. You get to go to some pretty incredible places around the world. We'll be right back. As life is slowly starting to feel normal again, Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work! So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining at me, go to alaskateenmedia.org join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Could you kind of explain and just kind of go through the different volcanoes that we have in Alaska? Sure, I can, I can talk about that. So mostly what we have are what are called stratovolcanoes. And, and they're, they're um, uh, composite volcanic cones that are made up of lava flows, and pyroclastic deposits. So stuff that's explosively erupted out of the volcano is interbedded with the lava flows. And that kind of activity tends to produce a tall, somewhat steep, uh, and, and very voluminous cone. Um, and most of those types of volcanoes um, are covered with snow and ice. They're glaciated or at least have seasonal snow cover. So because of that, when eruptive activity occurs, uh, hot eruptive products will mix and melt snow and ice and produce meltwater. And volcanoes like that, I refer to them as sediment factories. They, they produce a lot of loose, erodible debris and so when the meltwater is generated by that uh, interaction, it, it entrains and picks up all of that loose material and forms what are called lahars or volcanic mud flows. And these can be uh, extremely dangerous because they flow fast. Um, it's like, like a, a slurry of concrete um, moving you know, at, at 10 to 20 meters per second 
um, and they would inundate valleys. And, and uh, so that happens regularly. Um, at, at Readout, for example, uh, these, these sorts of mud flows uh, inundated uh, an oil terminal. There's an oil terminal there, a storage and, and transfer facility, which has since been closed. But um, the, the past three eruptions of, of Readout threatened the site. And fortunately, no oil was spilled, but it was kind of a close call. Um, these flows are enormous. Um, and the, uh, just think of the valley that they, they flow in is uh, about a mile and a half wide and um, 25 or so miles long. And these flows completely filled up the valley floor of, of a valley that big and flowed out into the ocean. And in a couple of instances, uh, the flows were transporting, you know, car-sized, uh, truck-sized blocks of ice or chunks of the lava dome that even at a distance of like 30 miles from the volcano, the, the, the chunks of the lava dome are still hot enough to, to boil water around them. Um, so it, it's, it was just unbelievable to see that. Yeah. So most of these stratocones are, are, are glaciated or have snow on them, which, which uh, that's a, a kind of an, a particular interest of mine is how volcanoes and snow and ice interact. Um, then we have um, a few shield type volcanoes. So these would be lower profile uh, volcanoes that are mostly made up of lava flows. Um, there aren't a lot of those but there are a few, uh, Westall Volcano, for example, and Mount Wrangell in the Wrangell, St. Elias Mountains are shield type volcanoes. And then we have these Mars that, that I was uh, talking about um, and sort of some miscellaneous vents and things like that that uh, um, produce mainly lava flows. Um, we have a bunch of uh, smaller cinder cones uh, that that are typically on the flanks of bigger cones, um, and but those are the main the main types that we have up here. I should mention too that that one one uh, particularly uh, different type of feature that we have is a is a structure called a caldera. And so, if you've ever been to Crater Lake in Oregon, for example. Um, that's a that's a caldera. So these these are large circular structures, um, six to eight miles in diameter, uh, that form after excessive amounts of magma eruption. Right. So really, really, the biggest known eruptions happen, and these the, the volcano kind of collapses on itself and forms these big circular caldera structures. And we have a number of those in Alaska. So Antiakchak and Veniaminoff, Emmons Lake, uh, Fisher Caldera, uh, those are all examples. And um, but these, these, these record the, the biggest of the big eruptions that we know about. You've mentioned um, readout quite a couple times, you know, throughout the interview. And is that the most active volcano that we have? No. The most active volcano, uh, it's probably a toss-up between Pavlov and Cleveland. So Pavlov is out on the Alaska Peninsula uh, near Cold Bay and King Cove, uh, Sandpoint out that way. 
and Cleveland is west of Dutch Harbor, and it's it's in the islands of the Four Mountains. And um, Cleveland is so far out there; it's it, the, the monitoring that we've done on it is has been hit and miss because it's so hard to get to. And if equipment goes down, it's tough to get there. Pavlov is a little easier to get to. Um, so we, we may we have a, a pretty good understanding of of the eruptive history from historical accounts. Um, but it's possible that we may have missed some with Cleveland just because it's so remote. So those two are, are the most active. But within the Cook Inlet area, so that would be Spur, Readout, Iliamna, and Augustine. Um, Augustine is the most active uh, historically. But Readout has probably erupted the most within the last 10,000 years. And the way that we know that is... Um, we uh, have cored a bunch of lakes around readout. So what we do is we go out with a raft and a coring, uh, some coring equipment and core the muds that are on the bottom of the lake and extract a, a core. And you can see different layers of ash in there. And we can figure out how often the volcano has produced, uh, has had ash producing eruptions and we can use radiocarbon dating to date those layers and develop an age depth relation so that we can figure out how often. Uh, and so when you do that, it turns out readout has had as many as 80 uh, individual ash producing eruptions in the last 10,000 years or so, which is, which is far and away more than any other volcano. So even though it's not been as historically active as Augustine, um, the longer term record suggests that readout is really the, the, main, the main eruptor. And you find it's ash deposits all over the place. Um, if you were to dig around on the Kenai Peninsula, you'd, you'd bump into some readout ash layers pretty fast. Well, something that kind of you know inspired me to talk to you today was that as a kid, I was absolutely terrified of volcanoes once i started to get into geology and earthquakes I'm, I'm still very fascinated by earthquakes but i think once i discovered like what volcanoes were and that we had volcanoes i was that was it for me yeah. <laughs> and so i was just wondering how has your job changed your perspective on how you see volcanoes the observations never cease to amaze me you know the some of the things that i've seen them do are are just awe-inspiring um the, the the just the sheer amount of energy released and the impacts um it, it's it's just yeah i mean it, there's never a dull moment in this business it's there's always something interesting going on and um having a a, a group of very clever colleagues who come up with all kinds of interesting ways to monitor and evaluate things just makes it even more interesting when you start thinking about what what uh, kind of processes occur um, and how powerful these these things really are, and then just to to watch, you know, an eruption in progress is is just it's phenomenal. Have you watched a volcano eruption happen? Yeah, so. Um, we we have um, of course have to stay some distance away, um, and can only approach closely when things have really quieted down. But we can watch remotely, and um, 
you know, I'll use Pavlov as an example. Um, so from uh, Cold Bay, we can we can see the volcano pretty well when it's uh, good weather. And when Pavlov erupts, it it produces these these um, lava fountains at the summit. And so these are like jets of incandescent rock and lava that are shot 300 meters up into the air. And it, it, I mean, it's incredible to see at night, especially these, these fountains of just like the ones that you might see in Hawaii, um, that happens there. They're like rooster tails of, of hot incandescent rock shooting up into the sky and <laughs> being able to watch that, um, Benny Amanoff, which has been active recently, has um, uh, been uh, making lots of booming sounds that people in the area were, were hearing and kind of scared about. And so, uh, you know, that was cool to, to, uh, to hear about that and, and listen to that. Um, then the lightning that I talked about, you know, that was really amazing. Uh, to, to see mm-hmm. um, the Kasatochi eruption, um, I had I had a chance to go there uh, like two weeks after the eruption happened, and so we went over in a helicopter and landed on the beach. And I got out, and I was stunned at how hot it was. The heat of the eruptive products they were they were still very hot, and the whole area was steaming, and I, I it was just. I should have known that this this was going to be that way, but until you actually feel it, right, and and see the fumaroles and steaming everywhere, and an island that was at before completely covered in lush green vegetation, right, and wet, and to be transformed into a moonscape, uh, you know, meters and meters of of, of ash um, covering it, and um, it was it was really like wow <laughs> yeah it was it was something yeah how interesting yeah yeah i um i can't remember what um volcano it was but when i was a kid we had to wear and i was um and i went to school in at this time in wasilla and i remember there was an advisory about volcanic ash um so we all had to wear face masks in school um, because a volcano had erupted, I can't. I honestly, I, I looked up about what time or what not what time. What um, what year was that? Uh, two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. So, readout erupted in in two thousand nine, mm. and there was ash fall on parts of South Central in March. Um, okay. So that might have been it. Yeah. That might have been it. That might have been it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, I was just wondering, you know, if a volcano um, erupted um, again like that, what could we do to prepare ourselves for a another volcanic eruption? That's that's a great question. So, because ash is so fine, it it can cause respiratory problems. So that's that's the reason for the dust masks, right? Uh, so people that that have asthma, uh, small children, elderly people. Uh, the, the ash could cause some some issues, and it, it would be similar to uh, you know bad dust storms that that happen, or you know how the air gets here right after the snow goes out, right? And they haven't cleaned up all the gravel. There's, there's a lot of dust in the air, and it bothers people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
ash is very easily resuspended by vehicles and the wind. And so unless it's it's kind of cleaned up and kept wet, it'll it'll dry out and get resuspended again and, and continue to cause problems. So just as an aside, um, the, the Katmai eruption that occurred uh, in 1912 produced this big ash flow sheet in the valley of 10,000 smokes. And even today, when the winds are favorable, they blow across this ash flow sheet and resuspend ash, sometimes as high as 20,000 feet above sea level, that we can see in satellite data. And it looks just like an ash cloud. And for all practical purposes, it, it is, right? And it can cause the same kind of problems for aircraft. So even though the volcano is, is the eruption is long over, these kinds of hazards can persist for decades, centuries, right? Um, so that's another part of it that's, that's kind of wild. Uh, similar things happen near Readout in the Drift River when the winds blow, uh, ash gets resuspended and causes problems in the area. The other thing that, that um, happens on communities is um, it, it's, ash can, can cause problems for electronic equipment um, and computers and stuff like that. If it gets in the ventilation system, um, you know, and gets sucked into your house or your business or buildings, you know, it's tough to get it out of there. Um, it can mess up drinking water supplies. Uh, so Anchorage gets a good share of its water from the Klutna Lake. And uh, so ash fall on a, on a municipal water supply could cause some uh, temporary problems, um, can change the water chemistry, it can foul up the pumps, stuff like that. In a lot of the villages uh, in more remote parts of Alaska, almost all of their drinking water comes from surface water catchments of various types, dams and reservoirs, and they can be fouled up pretty good with, with ashfall. Uh, fortunately, um, what's leached off the ash isn't necessarily that toxic. Um, in other parts of the world, you could have some really toxic stuff like fluorine attached to the ash and gets leached off, and that can cause lots of health problems. So it would be, um, you know, prudent for people that that uh, you know have reservoirs or or uh, maybe like in Hawaii they they uh, uh, catch rainwater off of roofs that they use for irrigation and stuff like that to protect those things. In the, in the event of a possible ash fall. Um, vehicles can be messed up, um, air filters and stuff like that. Often those go, go out of stock pretty quick. Um, and then, you know, if, if um, the ash is somewhat thick and it gets wet, it's going to weigh a lot more. And so certain structures could be vulnerable to collapse if the ash load is thick enough. Now, there haven't been really any historical eruptions uh, that, that produced that much ash fallout on Anchorage. But within the last 5,000 years, there have been some pretty substantial ash falls on, on Anchorage, on the you know, Anchorage municipality that we, we know about from ash deposits that we find around the area. So it's 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 kind of rare for that thickness of ash fall here. Um, but 
this is taken very seriously by a lot of businesses and organizations. And so toward the end of uh, June, I'm going to be doing an exercise with one of the oil companies to work through the impacts of asphalt on their kind of continuity of operations and, you know, present a scenario so that they can better prepare because there could be disruptions in all kinds of things, right? Telecommunication uh, stuff could go down. Um, People might not be able to drive um, where they need to. And for businesses, you know, like some of the oil companies that have to support operations in other parts of the state, you know, they'd have to be ready to deal with that. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. It'll be kind of interesting to, uh, to do that. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. So what would happen if a, not a super historical ash fall were to occur, but just if a regular ash fall were to occur, how could we, because how could Anchorage or how could the Valley or Eagle River kind of better prepare for those kind of ash falls? So, so the way this might work, um, you know, we, we would have some advance warning that, that, let's say, readout was becoming restless, right? We would see outward signs of, of uh, steaming, and um, we'd see certain kinds of earthquakes. And then once an eruption began, uh, we would see the ash cloud in satellite data. And we, we use some numerical models to simulate uh, where the ash is going to go with the prevailing winds. And we can make some forecasts about uh, how high and how far the ash is going to travel and how much is likely to fall out. And so we can we can do that really quickly and get that information out to the communities. And so let's say uh, at Wasilla Airport, we could be talking uh, to the to the airport managers and say, well, we're, we're anticipating a few millimeters of ash fall at this time that may last for a couple of hours, and so they would they would probably try to get that information out to pilots and ask people to cover up their airplanes. They might close the airport for a short period of time, and then be ready to do cleanup to get it off the runways. This is what they do at, at Anchorage International, for example. Um, they, 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 they get ready to respond and, and so that their operation isn't closed for too long. But Anchorage International has been closed a couple of times uh, for a day or two during some of the readout eruptions and, uh, and during the spur eruptions in 92. Um, so they, they were able to safely um, get airplanes in and out. The military will often move aircraft from Elmendorf to Fairbanks if they think there's going to be interruptions with ash and they can't fly. Um, so while that cloud is moving over the city, there would probably be very little air travel. The airplanes would probably not be flying um, or going to alternate landing sites, right? Like Fairbanks or King Salmon or some place mm-hmm. out of the way. <clears throat> But all that stuff costs money, right? To mm-hmm. anytime you fire up a seven forty seven, it's <laughs> it's costing you something. And so, um, trying to get out ahead of these things with with these models and forecasts and stuff, and of course, we work really closely with the FAA and the National Weather Service uh, and the state to to uh, craft these warnings and consult with them quite a bit and work as a team. Um, 
and then if if the eruption is is looking to be particularly large and lengthy, uh, we would probably be involved with some kind of incident command uh, setup uh, through the state's uh, Division of Homeland Security. Um, and we routinely drill with those folks. I'll go over and give presentations about volcano hazards and how AVO operates and stuff like that, just so that that from an emergency responders perspective, they know what kind of information we can provide. Um, so we've been through enough of these now that that um, things work pretty well from a response perspective. And um, we're pretty proactive about getting information out to the communities um, about the potential impacts. And then at other times, we'll spend time writing what are called volcano hazard assessments. So I've written a bunch of these for a number of the volcanoes in the state. And these are documents that can be uh, retrieved from the Volcano Observatory website and downloaded. And they describe all of the hazards that are, that are uh, of interest at a particular volcano and what to do and stuff like that. We try to engage communities that are close by in, in a proactive way so that they, they can make observations because we're not there and, and may not be able to get there easily. Uh, sometimes they collect ash samples for us. Um, we have instructions on how to do that. Um, and and uh, so, so we try to get sort of a citizen science component going and involve people that are nearby to the extent possible. And that works really well. Um, we've gotten some, some really great um, samples sent to us from uh, communities where ash has fallen. Um, and students have gotten involved from you know, local high schools and middle schools and stuff to make observations. Um, we often have equipment uh, installed at some of the schools. And, and uh, so that's a really good uh, segue to, to teach kids about these processes and show them what we do and stuff. Well, I admire all the work that you do with volcanoes and and just your work and your job just sounds so fascinating to me. And I'm so glad I got to talk to you today. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add with volcanoes or anything of the sorts? Um, well, so we have a really great website, www.avo.alaska.edu. So if, if people are interested in more information, I would start there. And there's uh, there are various contacts um, and uh, you can reach out to specific individuals um, if, if more information is needed. But that's the best place to go to get additional information. Um, but no, this was great, Daisy. It was really a pleasure talking with you. And uh, it's a good thing you're doing here. I love, I love the fact that you're getting this word out to people. And that uh, yeah, was, was fun to do. That was At Me Senior producer Daisy Carter speaking with research geologist Chris Way Thomas. You've been listening to Zoom Room, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music is by Kendrick Whiteman, and the interview was edited by Tyler Felson. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Danana people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including Rosie Robards and Nat Herz. 
The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of the National Endowment for the Humanities or other sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And if you are a youth ages 13 to 24 who is interested in becoming a member of our team, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join to find out more. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Yuli Zong. Thanks for listening. <laughs>